Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. How are you? I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have on the program today Shannon McLeod. She has a novella out on Long Day Press. It is called Whimsy. And it's about a seventh grade teacher. Young, in her 20s. Traumatized. It's the story of a woman uh, who is making her way in life in her young adult years in the aftermath of a terrible car accident in college in which... Her passenger lost her life. And uh, the protagonist, whose name is Whimsy, she sustained, uh, you know, along with the emotional and psychological traumas uh, that go along with an accident like that, she also sustained facial scarring. So that's what this book is about in a nutshell, and I really enjoyed it. It feels lived in and human and real in the way of good fiction. And I just love talking with Shannon McLeod who has a, a promising future. She's a young writer. And uh, I don't know, we just got along. It was fun to talk with her and to hear about her life and her work. So that is coming up in just a moment. For those of you who are new to this podcast, uh, Other People was launched in 2011. This is the show's 10th year. It celebrates its 10th birthday in September. which is hard to believe. And we're now at uh, more than 700 episodes and counting. The entire archive of this show is made available to listeners free of charge. Everything, all 701 episodes, free of charge. New episodes go live every Wednesday. You can listen via all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you prefer. And uh, also, uh, just a quick reminder, the Other People podcast now has its own YouTube channel. So all of the episodes of this program, the entire archive, can be found over at YouTube. You can check that out and subscribe if you would, please. Uh, again, it's free. It's a listener-supported show. So if you listen regularly, if you like the program and you get something from it, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do that over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod, for as little as a buck a month, $1 a month. Throw a dollar in the hat. Three bucks, five, ten, whatever you can afford. There are various tiers. There are prizes. You can get another people mug, another people t-shirt, another people tote bag. 
You can get a, a TNB Book Club subscription where you get a book every month. I'll wish you a happy birthday. I'll even write you a postcard. Aww. So for more on that, go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod. The Other People podcast is uh, sponsored by Avid Reader Press, publisher of the novel Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. It is uh, rich with Bogota urban life and steeped in Andean myth. It's a tense and heartbreaking novel about the reality of being undocumented in America. This is an excellent book. Infinite Country is the story of two countries and one mixed status family. And it asks readers if home can be a country that you've never known. Infinite Country is a Reese Witherspoon book club selection. It is an instant New York Times bestseller. And uh, I recommend it. Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. Available now in bookstores and online from Avid Reader Press. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So today's guest, Shannon McLeod, author of the new novella, Whimsy, available from Long Day Press. Really enjoyed this one. Hope you enjoy it too. Here she is, folks. This is Shannon McLeod. You know, the accident is a big thing, but it doesn't actually happen during the book. It's like before the majority of the story takes place. Um, So I definitely didn't want that to be the center of the action, but more for it to be focused on her um, dealing with the trauma and trying to grow essentially when she's coming up, up, up against all of these limitations that her own anxiety and trauma has placed in front of her. Um, so part of, I think, why it is such like a small book, so to speak, is that the book that I had written before um, was trying to do a lot. It was this multi-perspective novel. Um, it was like a cult novel, uh, trying to have these environmental sort of morals to them. And uh, after I wrote that and it just, it felt really difficult and then it didn't really ring true. Um, my personal challenge for myself was to write a story that's very simple and just you know, first person protagonist, just focusing on her. And I think part of that challenge 
along with the fact that I was going through a pretty intense therapy, um, is what helped me to get closer to the character and right closer to the bone and just be more vulnerable um, with this character. So I think that's part of what makes it ring true to people, at least a lot more than my previous two attempts at writing books, um, is that I, I was really trying to show up for this book and um, put myself into it in a way that I don't think I did before because I was focusing so much on plot and trying to do the things and save the cat and all of that. Right. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, okay, so that was, I was kind of barking up the right tree there. I feel the similar pressure and it's not necessarily, Mm. it's not necessarily a bad impulse to want to tell a great story and to, you know, to entertain the reader. But, you know, I can also be of the mind personally that you can only be the writer that you are. You know what I'm saying? If you try to be someone that you're not on the page, it doesn't work. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I guess that then begs the question: like, well, what kind of writer am I? <laughs> yeah. um, am I somebody who can only write like personal stuff, or you know, kind of like uh, these lower key auto fiction books, or you know, whatever you or what? What do you call them? Uh, Wan little husks? Isn't that what Joyce Carol right. calls them? <laughs> I, you know, I, I admit I don't even really know what that means I mean I know it was the Joyce Carol Oates slam but like what what did she even mean by that just autofiction yeah I think she just means like these <laughs> like thinly veiled autobiographical works of fiction that um I guess like don't aspire to the heights that she feels she writes at or aspires to I don't know mm-hmm. you know it's like gotcha it's, yeah. it's basically just an expression of personal taste that she projected onto like all of literature, right? I mean, isn't that what we do? We do that though as people. We're like, I don't like this, therefore it is bad for everyone. And right. to me, it's like, okay, so don't read it. There's plenty of other books out there. That's okay. You yeah, know? Like, absolutely. I wonder if when you get to that point in your career, though, where you have multiple books and you're older and you're getting all these awards, like you're expected to say, you know, make those sweeping statements about literature and. I wonder if it's pretty easy to fall into the the trap of like, oh, okay, giving the people what they want. <laughs> I must proclaim. I think too, it's because yeah. she's on she's on Twitter. Like Twitter, oh, she needs to get off Twitter. Yeah, but she's on Twitter, no, and she probably never is, good things she's happening a, for her. Right, she's addicted, just like everybody else is, and like, yeah, it just I I don't think it always brings out the worst in people, but I know from my own experience that like. You know, some days you're in a mood and you have a take and you put it up and like it feels really good in the moment. It's like that sugar high. And then like the next day you wake up and you're like, who the, what? Like, I just feel like an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> I just want to like go crawl under a rock and like pretend like that never happened. But uh, I don't know though if she has any like uh, Twitter remorse. I, you know, I don't know how she's wired. Some people seem to just be able to roll with it, but I always sat there and freaked out quietly. Oh, yeah, totally. My most controversial opinions are always just about food on Twitter. Like, I don't dare proclaim any, you know, firm beliefs about anything else. I feel like I feel like uh, like hardcore food takes are sort of fun, though. Yeah, I agree. Like when people like I because you can be like pizza's disgusting and everyone can just like (laughs) throw a fit. But they're not going to like, yeah, but it won't feel like, it won't feel toxic or something. It won't, it won't like degenerate into some sort of uh, like, you know, 
I don't know, like intellectual awfulness or something. But right. I, uh, I, you know, now I, for some reason I'm thinking of this recent, uh, Moby tweet where he tweeted and he's gotten these like incredibly, uh, large, like vegan tattoos. Have you seen this? <laughs> I have not, but I could picture them. Like one of his arms is like animal and like Helvetica bold, essentially. And the other one is like <laughs> rights. And then on his oh. neck, it says like vegan for life. He got oh, a wow. Yeah. And then he got a finger. He got like V on his finger. So like he went all in and uh, that would actually be the exception to the rule. I feel like that kind of food tweeting generates like a super vitriolic and toxic response <laughs> right like the like the crispy cream thing what about what, what have I, you read about this well no i just crispy they're giving away donuts to people yeah. who get vaccinated and this doctor tweeted about i guess i'm not even i think she was a doctor uh tweeted that if you ate a crispy cream donut every day for the rest of this year you would gain 15 pounds and like saying how horrible it is and it's and I think people reacted like, well, not only is that she's got some fat phobia that she's thrown around here, but like uh, nobody is going to probably, well, there will be people, but probably most people aren't going to drive themselves down to Krispy Kreme every day for the rest of the year and like stop shitting on Krispy Kreme trying to give us something. <laughs> okay, so I take it back. I, there's no realm in of Twitter that cannot be easily yeah. sullied, like yeah. even food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess food, of course, it can degenerate in all sorts of different ways. But I think there's a certain kind of food tweet made in good, like good humor that is yeah. safe. That's what I'm on Twitter for. Okay. That's a good reason to be on, you know, as long as you can maintain <laughs> the discipline. Uh, so, okay. So you had been trying to write this really complex multi, like, as you said, like multi POV, you know, kind of grand statement uh, yeah. of a book. This feels familiar to me. And then that isn't working and things start to work better when you get simpler and more personal mm -hmm. and more vulnerable. Um, do you feel like you'll ever try to go back to something that works on that bigger canvas? And do you feel like whimsy is like a step in that direction or do you feel like you had some sort of creative epiphany about yourself and you learned like, this is what I do well. And this is when things work. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, are you mm -hmm. going to go, are you going to go deeper in the whimsy direction or are you taking whimsy as a lesson that you can then apply to another attempt at the, the bigger canvas? Yeah. I think for me, I needed to go simple so that I could learn how to do that and learn how to, you know, right into the voice um, that I was still working on developing. So my next step, like I, I've been working on a new novel that I thought was a thriller. My, <laughs> my agent told me it's more of like suspense because there's not enough blood and murder, I guess. Um, but and that's multi perspective. So I am going back to it. I have it's three POVs instead of like seven. Um, so I am going more toward plotty. Um, and multi-perspective novel that I've I've wanted to do in the past because I really enjoy reading those sorts of books as well. Um, I enjoy reading the like simpler first-person books too. But um, so I am trying that again. Um, but I think I'm doing so 
um, while better understanding, um, yeah, the kind of writer that I am and what I need to do in order to inhabit a character well enough to for it to come across with truth and to feel some emotional honesty in those characters. Um, it's definitely still difficult to do with multiple characters, I think. Um, but I think it's going better this time than it did before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think there's something to slowing down. Yeah. Uh, and like really paying attention. That's been my experience anyway, when especially when it comes to like trying to inhabit characters or um, make things like emotionally interesting for a reader, or at least for myself, mm -hmm. you know, it can be hard. I think there's like some physical resistance in me and maybe in most writers when you have to slow down at the, you know, what does Steve Ullman say? Slow down at the places that hurt, <laughs> hmm. um, you know, which I think is a good lesson. You know, it's like, I think the, the instinct is to speed up and to get past it, but it's actually precisely the place where you need to kind of uh, tap the brakes if we're going to use a driving analogy. <laughs> Please get rid of it. <laughs> By the way, I think with anti-lock brakes, tapping the brakes is not even advisable. I think like the, with brake technology as it exists now, it's better just to apply consistent pressure to the brake than it is to... My dad growing up when he was like teaching us how to drive was like, you have to pump the brakes, pump the brakes. You oh, know? yeah. Because he didn't want like us to, you know, we were in the north and he didn't want us to, you know, spin out on the ice or whatever. Um. So I don't know. I, was I getting at a question just a second ago? I, yeah, I think you were. And then I, yeah, I lost it when I started thinking about spinning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to re-traumatize you there. I was think, I was saying that, uh, you know, th this like slowing down as, yeah. uh, you know, as a way to um, like zero in on what's most interesting in mm -hmm. your, in your book. Um like, why is it so, I feel like everything is so, um, like you're supposed to slow down right where you want to speed up. You're trying to write like a super complex novel when what you should be writing is a super simple one. <laughs> like basically the lesson is just do the opposite of whatever you're doing and that will work. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> or at least your initial instinct, like challenge everything everything that you want to do and uh maybe it's because we're always trying to like find the shortcut and finish a project quickly and or at least for me i'm you know very careful about my time so then i think like I, i'll have a plan for my writing goal and you know i want to get this novel done by this date and um so I think when you want to be economical with your time, you're like not really giving it the time that it needs. Um, and I think, you know, like the Steve Almond um, quote that you mentioned, I think like when you're not grappling with anything with a character, that's when they fall flat when you're just trying to mimic like that's I, I feel like that's when you fall into tropes. And it loses its complexity. So whimsy is a teacher. Yeah. And what grade? I'm. Am I forgetting? Seventh it? grade. Seventh grade. Okay. And that was some of my. That was one of my favorite elements of the book is how lived in and um, 
beautifully rendered the teaching and the school environment and the <laughs> like the the teacher to teacher politics all of it was very i went to public school in the midwest growing up me uh, too <laughs> okay so yeah okay I, I was raised in milwaukee you're from detroit there's something about the people and the interactions that they have and then also what it feels like to be a teacher i taught um college for five years and oh i remember uh the feeling of walking into the room on day one and having all those faces staring at you and uh you know especially in the, especially in that first year you're like what am i doing like why am i here and why have they entrusted me with this it's a lot of pressure yeah yeah you're so exposed so i mean i'm a teacher so it was easy to write that experience and my first year uh, no that was my second year of teaching that i taught middle school um but yeah, I think it, it worked really nicely with the character that I was trying to build with Whimsy when she is so paranoid about how people are perceiving her. She's so insecure. Her um, image of herself is completely distorted. So it felt right that she would be a first-year teacher because when you're going from being a student where you can hide in the crowd to being the teacher where you're standing up, yeah, everyone's looking at you, or at least on the first day, <laughs> then they kind of get distracted and um, there's less pressure. But uh, it's it's so bizarre. And if you're feeling insecure or hyper aware of your body and how you look, it feels horrible especially when you're teaching teenagers or middle schoolers in particular who are also hyper aware about their bodies and starting to become more perceptive of of other people in that respect so um that worked out nicely i think from a, a plot point and just to help give that character um her at least her experience of the world uh, to heighten the anxiety and the insecurity for her. So I'm glad you enjoyed those parts because I was worried that those parts would get boring. Some friends who read it, like one in particular, was like, oh, these parts are so boring to me. <laughs> Not to me. No, I thought the school stuff was great. And, you know, we should tell listeners, too, that Whimsy, as a result of the, the tragic car accident that she was in, um, you know, has like facial scarring. And, you know, I have to, I have to admit when I was reading, I was thinking to myself, like, that is not something that I think I would handle very well. Mm, yeah. Re really hard to be scarred and disfigured and have to go out into the world, especially in a, in a front facing job, like teaching, you know, with, mm -hmm. with students who are like 12 and 13 and might not always be like super sensitive, um, you know, <laughs> with their comments and everything else. And I don't know, it's just like a tough fate. I felt a lot for this character. Like she's a really sympathetic character. And I love stories of people who are living their lives and doing their work and like just trying their best and just getting beat up by life. <laughs> right. and, you know, like that resonates relatable? with me. Yeah, totally yeah. relatable. <laughs> like, you know, I guess it's probably relatable to most all of us. It's, it's, uh, it's a sweet story. And, you know, the other part of it, I think, is, you know, she's trying to deal with uh, dating. And mm -hmm. I, I see this over and over again in fiction, at least this year in what I've been reading. It's like, man, man men on the page 
often do not acquit themselves well, <laughs> especially <laughs> when it comes to, you know, relationships and intimacy and like, there is so much bumbling. And again, I, you know, I find it relatable. Like, uh, you know, Rakesh, who is the name of the romantic interest, um, like when, you know, this guy that whimsy is dating or seeing intermittently seems like a good guy. Yeah. Like he's not like a dick in the in the yeah. sort of like, you know, cartoonish sense that we sometimes like see online or whatever, but uh he's still like bumbling. <laughs> yes. And like yeah, he's uh, a bumbling good guy. He's like a bumbling good guy and and ultimately just like sort of can't deliver. And I'm not talking about like, you know, physically or anything like that. I just mean like, you know, as a on a human level, you know, there's that disconnect. And um, I found that very true to life because I think it's the more, at least for me, it seems like the more common scenario. You know, there are obviously situations where you have men who are behaving really badly um, in an overt way. But more often the case, it's like people trying their best and still failing (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) or at least failing the other person. Right. Or their their needs are completely conflicting with the needs of the person that you want to be with and are trying to force it to happen. And it's just just not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's like I think that's one of the hardest lessons of life, you know, especially in that period of your life between like 16 and I don't know, your 20s, somewhere in your 20s is unrequited love Mm -hmm. and just being like really into somebody and doing like most things right and like trying your best to be like appealing to them and like to be your best self for them. And you do that and they're just like, yeah, not going to work for me. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so hard not to take it completely personally. And like, it's all, it's all me. It's all my fault. And, but isn't um, it, I mean, it's not all your fault. It's not all anybody's fault when the love is unrequited. It takes two, but like, there's something just so to me anyway, it just seems so brutal. Uh, yeah. Like I, I'm trying to find like the silver lining in it. I guess like looking back, like I do thank my stars for unrequited loves. Like, woof, I dodged a <laughs> bullet, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was, I thought I was supposed to go there and I'm very glad that like it didn't work out. So you do have like the benefit of hindsight in that way. Um, but just like, I don't know, human rejection is so harsh sometimes. Um, and even when it's not like delivered insensitively, just that feeling of like, Mm -hmm. wow, like whoever I am, whatever this is, it's just not going to cut it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, I don't know, you capture that really beautifully. And I like the fact that that Rakesh is like, he's like a somewhat redeeming figure. Like he wasn't just like this cartoon of like the bad bro, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I had some other bad bros in the book to fill that out. Yeah. No, there was a, (laughs) was it Rick? Was Rick who was like, Oh yeah. Frederick. Okay. And he was the, he was the guy doing open mics. Yeah. Okay. And then who was the other one? Like, um, I, I guess just all of those sort of minor college bros. Yeah. Who were the first to express like disgust at, at, um, whimsy scars. Right. 
But I did, a friend who read an early draft of the book, I remember she texted me when she finished it and was like, I just wanted to kick Rakesh in the balls. And I was like, <laughs> no, no, that's not what I wanted to come across. But, you know, but this <laughs> well, is the thing. To you. This is the thing. I can relate to whimsy um, and like her feelings of uh, like heartbreak and dissatisfaction and like, what the fuck, dude? Like that whole thing <laughs> I can totally relate to. I can also relate to Rakesh. I think you rendered him yeah. sympathetically. Like he's, I don't know, you know, he's trying his best and still fucking things up. That's a, that's a terrible situation to be in too. Like it sucks to be the person who is unrequited, uh, but it also kind of sucks to be the unrequiter sometimes. Right. <laughs> if that's a word, you know, to have to be yeah. the person who's like trying to navigate, like disappointing someone, breaking yeah. up, breaking up with somebody is hell. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're wired like I am. Like I like I went through that. I don't know, just a couple of times, and it was miserable. I I was terrible at it too. Like <laughs> these people who are like, oh, you know, I'm still friends with all of my exes, and we still. I'm like, I wish that were the case. I'd be down. How is that possible? But I was so awkward and bumbling and like rakeshish <laughs> that I think like yeah. e even with best intentions, like you fuck things up so badly that they're just like, yeah. okay you know, goodbye to you. And that's it. The uh, kind avoidance of rejecting someone is, is so much worse. And I think that, you know, people who want to be kind about breaking up with someone are often the worst at it. Right. Okay. So now you're making me feel better. I'm trying to be kind. And yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I have such an interest in being kind, I fucked you're it up. You're terrible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what is the best way to do it. I'm curious, like, like, is there a book on this? Like, does your therapist yeah, have any advice I for me? <laughs> I don't know. The last person I, I broke up with, um, it was on Valentine's day. So that was not a good thing. You broke up with somebody on Valentine's day. Yeah. Oh, I didn't mean to at all. It just, <laughs> it just happened. Yeah. And yeah, I, I feel horrible still. I don't um, think there's any good way to do it. Like, yeah. you know, I, though I, you know what, I take that back because I do think sometimes there are certain couples that consciously uncouple, right? <laughs> um, like that. And it happens as part of a long conversation mm. um, that somehow, or a standoff. I don't know, but it has to, it, like I, the only way that I can imagine it happening amicably is if there is like a sustained dialogue that does not devolve into um, like hurt, like really like irreparable hurt speech. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, there's got to be some like you. You have to arrive at some kind of detente that like mm -hmm. you know takes a while to get to where both parties like really understand one another. But I think what happens most of the time is that the communication gets bungled and people's feelings get hurt, and then they lose their temper and say something that they shouldn't say, and then it's just it's destroyed. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I when I think about that, oh, sorry, I keep hitting my hand against my desk here. Um, when I think about like the what you were describing, someone suggesting it at some point, like someone has to be the first one to say, you know, I don't think the spark is really there as much as it was before. And I feel like that even maybe I'm just a hypersensitive person as I, I am. Um, but I feel like that would be just as heartbreaking as I'm leaving you. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, it's all it's all tricky stuff, and I'm glad to have it behind me. Like the, I was yeah. not I was not good at like being a a single teenager or person in my twenties. Like, I didn't revel in that maybe the way that I should have. I found that to be like tedious and strange, and I, I didn't I wasn't good at it. You know? I Did know. you date a lot? No, hardly at all. Did you pine like for long periods of time? Sometimes, people? yeah, sometimes when I was like, especially when I was like in high school and um, or like early college. Yeah. But then, I don't know. I just felt like I sort of would know when someone was right. And I didn't have any interest in like dating a bunch of people that I knew weren't. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Maybe I was like, yeah. I was like kind of overconfident in my judgment of character or something, but it worked out. But... <laughs> yeah. When did you meet your wife? Uh, I mean, God, we've been together 15 years, 16 oh. years this year. So 16 years ago. <laughs> and it was very quick. You know, I kind of unfolded yeah. the way that I knew. Like I knew probably faster than she did, but I was like, okay. And it was like, a, it was such a relief for me. That's mm -hmm. what I, I experienced yeah. it as like a deep relief. Like, okay. Like, thank God. <laughs> like this nightmare of of trying yeah, to like, trying to like date and be single is over with. Like, I don't know anybody. I'm not sure. I, I guess I have some friends who were good at it or like kind of took it with a grain of salt and just like had flings and thought it was fun. But I, uh, I guess maybe I was like raised Catholic and there's too much pressure <laughs> or something. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do things lightly, you know, when it came to yeah. like intimate relationships. Like, too much guilt. Too much guilt and like also like just too much feeling like there's too much complexity and there's too much potential to harm somebody mm -hmm. um i felt like the a a sense of responsibility and it was like oh god i don't want to be like putting on like a false front or you know I, i'm very bad at i guess being a complete phony um that's probably good right <laughs> yeah that's a beautiful thing <laughs> I don't know. Just awkward. Sounds like you were doing it right. I don't know. You just know. have fewer stories. I, the only thing, I, f I feel the same way. Like I met my husband when I was 21 and we've been together for 10 years. And I, yeah, I felt like a sense of relief um, that I like had found my person and we both knew really quickly. Um, the only sort of sense of regret, if you could even call it that, is that in like movie plots and conversations, I'm like... I feel kind of left out of the online dating thing. Like, I don't get it. It, it. it started like right after, I want to say it started like right after I started dating my wife. Like that all began right around that time. Yeah. So I never swiped left or right. Never or, once. Never once. The, I don't know which is which. Yeah. I yeah. think swipe left is, they're gone. Right? Swipe right is good. I don't know. It would make sense that right is right. You would think. You know, but I'm also, I'm actually, uh, like if I'm given a choice between left or right, I tend to pick left, which I think has some, it's like some sort of like political superstition. <laughs> ah, um, are you left-handed left brained? No, but I'm, uh, I'm ambidextrous. I, it's oh. kind of weird. Like I can't throw a baseball or a football with both hands very well, but I shoot a basketball with my left hand and I write with my right hand. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know if everybody needed to know that, but now they do. 
Now we know. You're welcome. Did you want to expose that about yourself? Are you feeling regretful? And by the way, I am on the court every day, just, uh, you know, hooping Throwing lefties. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you mentioned that you are very um, careful about managing your time, which I imagine you would have to be if you're teaching, which is, you know, people always talk about teachers and having summers off and how nice that must be. But teaching is an incredible or an incredibly demanding job. And it puts a lot of demands on your time that go well beyond like 8 o'clock to 3 p.m. You know, like yeah. that part of it, I think sometimes gets lost in the shuffle is like, you know, yeah, school's out and you go home mid afternoon, but you've got like a huge stack of papers to grade and parent teacher conferences to prepare for. And, you know, you've got to go over your peer evaluation and, you know, there's just a million things to do. So uh, how do you get writing done amidst all that? Um. Oh, I, yeah, that's so true. And uh, I only recently started um, putting a limit on Saturdays. Like, I don't check my school email Saturdays. I don't plan. I don't grade on Saturdays. Um, but that, like, took a lot for me to set that boundary. So Saturdays are now my writing day. And I I try to do a little bit of writing during the week. I'm not usually successful. So... I a lot rides on my summer break. So then I do feel a lot of pressure and my other breaks, like I'm waiting for my spring break right now to go back to that um, suspense novel and revise it. Um, so I, yeah, I, I build it up and I have all of this time to plan uh, my goals for those breaks. So then once they arrive, I've built up a lot of pressure that I put up on myself to accomplish those writing goals. Um, so yeah, I think I I just give myself to-do lists and uh, sometimes they're kind of out of control and I don't know how to relax, but I, I do feel really protective of my time because like teaching takes up as much time and space as you give it. Like it could take up every day, every hour if I wanted to. Like the work never ends. You can always find something more to do and you're always at least right now, I think especially in the age of the internet where like students and parents can contact you at all times. Um, it's like you have to neglect some things and that does not feel right or good to me. And is one of the things that I dislike about teaching is that the amount that they ask of you is really not possible within the constraints of a life. And I don't have kids, which I am amazed at how how people with kids can be you know k-12 teachers because it's just it's an immense amount of work yeah no it's like uh i, I used to hate grading papers Ugh. it's hard why why is that like the being in the classroom part i liked a lot and interacting yeah. with students i think it was maybe just an issue of fatigue like you'd come home and i'd have like 300 pages of grading to do and i would just be like oh my god i'm gonna my brain just couldn't do it you know like yeah it's, it's that feeling and then you feel like you're failing <laughs> um because you're not giving it all the attention that it deserves and i hear you like it's a we ask way too much of our teachers i want to say that i was riding in an uber back when you could still do that without <laughs> you know catching a plague but uh I was riding in an Uber and uh, what was I? I was talking to the driver and she was either a 
former teacher or she had a sister who was a teacher and we were like debating what needs to happen in education to get our schools you know at the level that they should be at and i always just say like why do you why do we not pay teachers like we pay anesthesiologists wouldn't that do it like if you were like yeah you can come out of college and if you teach uh sixth grade we'll pay you a starting salary of three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think part of it is like when I talk to teachers who are considering leaving or have left, it's not even the workload that's usually cited. It's the feelings of disrespect and degradation that really do it Um, and the pay and the pay. You know, I went to (laughs) Madewell, you know, the clothing store um, like last year. And they do a teacher discount. So I like showed them my school ID and I was talking to the worker and she's like, oh, yeah, I used to work at the elementary school. Um, And then and then this one over here, I can't remember her name, uh, worked at uh, was a music teacher at the high school. And they're like, yeah, it's we make more money here and it's more fun and we have lives. I mean, so definitely the the money thing is, is part of it, but also just like depending upon what kind of school you're in and just the overall like media narrative um it's it sucks you don't feel respected and that's probably the hardest thing to deal with because it it really kind of crushes you sometimes right yeah no i hear you and i think that's in you know that's like a, a symbolic of like how fucked up our country is <laughs> yeah you know that we place yeah. like such like Instagram influencers are held in higher regard by the culture than school teachers. I mean, in a lot of quarters, at least. Or maybe I'm picking on Instagram influencers. You know what I mean, though. It's just <laughs> like reality TV yeah. stars or whatever. You know, they, these people are compensated, at least at the level of compensation. You know, it's way out of balance. And it just seems like we, if we placed a higher value on education and teaching as a profession like a it would you know the job would still be hard to do but at least you wouldn't have to be like you know i remember when i was teaching community college it was like i hated to do the math because i was like oh my god i I make like nine dollars an hour you know (laughs) yeah it was like really bad and i'm like working my ass off you know with a full load of classes and you know it's like you're it comes out to like 75 hours a week and you're like this is really not a great deal for me as a businessman <laughs> yeah right right yeah I had a co-worker told me um who since left teaching she's like I talked to my financial advisor and he said you should quit your teaching job and just put in more hours at the restaurant I'm working in because I would make more money and I mean that gets into like uh, how many colleges are switching to just hiring adjuncts and right. ugh. Right. It's, but I think also like in any of the jobs that are in the caring profession type, um, it's like there's so much um, guilt involved to like coerce more work for less pay out of people. Yeah, because like, you're, oh, you're a bad you human. This, you're a bad human. You do this out of the goodness of your heart. Right. Yeah, and think of the children or think of the patients. Um, well, yeah. no, okay. So let me flip it because doctors get paid very, very well. And, uh, you know, like, let's look at mental health care. Yeah. Uh, so many 
uh, shrinks these days don't take insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, or if they do, it's like on the patient to have to like go chase down blue shield and like file for it and try to get some, um, you know, to recoup the money. And it's, it's like, wow, you've got somebody who's like struggling with mental illness and they're like desperate for help and they come to you and you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to your problem for $200 an hour. And (laughs) Oh, by the way, if you want to get your insurance to pay for that, okay, but you got to go call them and deal with the (laughs) tedium on top of suffering with your mental illness. Like, I'm just like, damn, man, like that's harsh. And I know it's, you know, it's harsh for the, uh, like, I don't, I don't think anybody should have to deal with Blue Shield on a daily basis. That's a particular kind of hell, but it would just seem like the doctor who's working would be the, who's like supposedly the healer would be the one who would take that burden. it's, It's like shoved onto the patient's. Uh, it's all fucked up, but yeah, Medicare for all hashtag. Right. I mean, you know, and then like I sat on a plane once next to these young, uh, ladies who were both medical students and they were like super chatty, which this is not, I don't usually talk to people on airplanes, but you know, this was sort of unavoidable and they were just, <laughs> they were talking at you. Yeah. I mean, like they were just like, and they were great. They were super fun people to talk with, but, uh, you know, they were like, look, we're going to get paid well because we got into like this whole, you know, some kind of some form of this whole dialogue. And they were just like, look, we have huge student loans. You know, we have to go through like 12 years of schooling and we leave with like, you know, a quarter million dollars in debt. So I guess like, I guess that makes some sense, but we we need to figure out some like, sense some but, sense <laughs> yeah and then i think about like cnas like nursing assistants who get paid horribly who are asked to do the most difficult and like physical things you right. know like moving patients and changing diapers and it's just yeah it's messed up and they don't get paid shit right i don't even know what they yeah. make they wipe shit and they don't get paid shit damn all right. Well, I don't know if we're going to solve these issues yeah. today, <laughs> but um, it informs, you know, it informs your novella. I think like, you know, you're capturing the day-to-day existence of somebody who's just at the beginning of her career, like li- living a single life and, um, you know, navigating that and just like the brass tacks of what it's like to be alive and earning a living as a teacher and you know, balanced against all the concerns of being like a young woman in her twenties recovering from, um, a big trauma. Um, and I guess like a connected question when it comes to the, the thriller that you've alluded to, um, you know, not only are you trying to sort of chase down the, the big book that you were working on before you came to whimsy, um, but you're, you're leaning back into fear and, Mm. you know, sort of like exploring like worst case scenarios. (laughs) And you're also writing a thriller. And so what I wonder is, are you thinking in commercial terms? Because I know you're not supposed to write to the market and I know you're not supposed to like chase money as a writer. You've got to be pure of heart and just express yourself and if you start doing it for money, it can start to feel icky and you'll probably mm-hmm. wind up writing something shitty. I mean, this is like the logic that uh, sort of been hammered into my head through the years, you know, from various sources. 
Um, but I'll be, I'll be honest with you. Like I'm working on a book right now that is, I guess, political and auto fictiony. It's about like the last phase of the Trump presidency. Hmm. Um, but also about like my tedious domestic life, you know, just like being a parent in quarantine and all the rest. And, Mm. um, I keep telling myself like when I'm done with this, when I'm done with this one, I'm just going to write something fun. It's just going to be, (laughs) it's going to be like, it's going to be a thriller and there's going to be, you know, it's going to be, you know, just a, a page turner and they're going to make a movie out of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, are you yeah. make, are you making those kinds of calculations in your head with the thriller? Like, is it something like I need to write something that's going to be yeah. like saleable? Well, I mean, yeah, I just got done um, trying to sell a novella, which are like near impossible to get published and had several um, agents tell me you need to make this a novel. And I tried to make it a novel and I couldn't. So, yeah, I definitely had that in mind, like trying to write something that felt a little more marketable. Um, I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't motivated by the fact that I am just speaking of, um, you know, the intensity of teaching, like feeling burned out on teaching and, and the carrot at the end of the stick was like, maybe I could take a year off of teaching. And then, you know, if I sell a book and then I could kind of, you know, have some more time to write and recover from (laughs) the trauma that is being a teacher. Um, uh, I shouldn't use trauma in that way, but, you know, I'm being facetious, Uh, sort of, sort of. Um, But so I did have that in mind when I was outlining the book and first drafting the book. And now that I've spent more time with it and gone through a few drafts, my next revision that I'm planning on doing or working on in, um, in the next couple of weeks over my spring break, I feel like I'm taking out a lot of the things that I included in order to make it commercial. So the work that I did to try to um, feed what I think the market wants, I think I'm going to undo and try to bring it a little closer to myself. Um, So I don't know where it'll end up. Maybe it'll end up feeling more commercial or maybe it will end up with a small press like whimsy. Um, We'll see where it goes, but I think it kind of goes back to what you were saying about you are the writer that you are. And if you're trying to do something that's not within your wheelhouse or your skill set, it usually doesn't work out very well. But yeah, like I just, but I also like find myself thinking, like, how nice would it be to have this like, yeah. pop sensibility <laughs> and like just like everything you say is just got like wide appeal. Everyone's like, wow, like this big audience is just out there voraciously devouring whatever it is you publish and clapping for you. <laughs> right. Um, but then I pick up a book like Whimsy, which it's not like, uh, you know, it's not like some John Grisham novel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and I found it to be like delightful. Um, Thank you. You're working in miniature and, um, you know, I found it every bit as satisfying, I think, mm. as like reading, you know, a, a great thriller. I, I think they're doing different things, but... Yeah. It just sort of it like sort of bums me out that there's not more room in the culture for, um, you know, for this kind of work in terms of like wide appeal. Do you know what I'm saying? Like wide audience. Not to say that there's not a chance. I don't mean to damn the book, but I'm just saying like as a real, yeah. <laughs> as a person who's been around publishing for a long time, like it's hard. You know, small press books are hard. Any any press book is hard. 
But like you said, a novella, you know, in the marketplace when you go out with it, um, you know, why are novellas not more popular? People's attention spans are shit. Like this should be perfect. Right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I won't That's even take up much too. of your time. You know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I wonder if you think that, and it sounds like you don't, but I got the sense that even the big five publishers are starting to get a little more experimental because it's like, what do they have to lose? People aren't put spending as much money on books. And um, wait, is that happening for real? Now, I just said it and then I was like, maybe that's not true. I think in <laughs> recent history, like book sale, I think this past year I heard that book sales have gone up, but it sounds like the now I feel like I'm just making things up. But <laughs> well, I don't know because <laughs> um, I, I, I take my short memory of my understanding of the publishing world. I'm like, oh, I'm starting to notice some books that feel like big books to me and seem more experimental. But maybe they only seem big to me because I'm paying more attention to, you know, literary releases, for instance. Yeah, I think there's, you know, I feel like they they do happen. At, uh, there's just not, there's only a select number, you know, it's not a, it's a small number is I guess what I'm saying. And then I think you have these like vital smaller presses and indie presses that, that, you know, publish this, you know, the rest of it and often do it really well. Uh, I think, you know, you hear so many different things and I guess, you know, you'd have to be somebody really on the inside to understand it um, with great depth, but like, it seems like pop fiction um, books that have a chance to go to series or to be adapted. Um, you know, it seems like you, it seems like there's been a kind of a trend towards like more holistic um, publishing businesses that consider themselves to be media businesses as opposed to just exclusively mm. publishing businesses. I could see that becoming more the norm um you know where you you know like a book could have podcast rights or you know you're doing the audiobook you're doing the print edition and then you have also like some sort of film production arm i could yeah. see i could see companies like that being built i guess they probably already exist i know you know i know of one off the top of my head but um i sometimes wonder why like penguin random house doesn't have like a more robust like media division uh penguin random house miramax or just coming like, at you in 2022 or just like why are they not like making podcasts like why are they not making mm. why are they not adapting their own books you know like they're outsourcing it and um it seems like like a lost yeah. i don't know i'm dissecting a business that i really only partially understand but it just <laughs> seems that like nowadays the barriers to entry when it comes to different forms of media are relatively low. Right. Like, it's not as hard to make a movie as it used to be, you know, just because the, te mm -hmm. the technology that you need to make one is more affordable, um, you know, so who knows? But I, I guess like that would be uh, like a long winded way of asking you if you are going to direct the film adaptation of whimsy. Is this rumor true? <laughs> It is not, but I started that rumor. <laughs> no, I want. I wanted to plug, like, if anyone wants to make the movie of Whimsy, I feel like it would make a great movie. I think, or like some sort of series. Like, you know, you could even use the novella as like a starting point. But like you've, 
as they say in uh, Hollywood, you've built a world. I think you've got uh, a very sympathetic protagonist. It's a female-driven story, which I think we, you know, we need more of, and which uh, tend uh, seem to be like really resonant these days. And um, yeah, you know, why not? Yeah, Phoebe Waller Bridge, give me a call. <laughs> is that her, <laughs> wait, wait? Is there's Phoebe Waller Bridge, but there's also Phoebe Bridgers. Yes. This is so conf- Phoebe Bridgers is going to do the soundtrack, but Phoebe <laughs> Waller Bridge is going to co-write the script and direct. Okay. Co-write, does that mean that you're going to write it with her? Yes. And you're going to become very close friends, right? It's going to become... Exactly. Like- <laughs> That's my angle here. Just friendship. I'm only in writing for the friendship. Yeah. Well, and also, it would just be nice to be like friends with... Uh, like you could be like, I am friends with both Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Phoebe Bridgers. That would be some sort of like rare achievement, I feel oh, like. Man. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be like the Taylor Swift of the indie world and I feel, just befriend all the Phoebes. I got to say, I feel uh, like Phoebe Bridgers seems like this really sweet young woman, like super talented. Um, and I feel a sense of like fear for her. She's like the bell of the ball. Uh, mm. You know how they they build people up and then they tear them down. You know what I'm saying? The culture kind of does that. Yeah. And I'm like just... they're gonna pull a Jennifer. God, now I've what's her last what's her last name that everybody loved like ten years ago? The actress Aniston. Lawrence. No. Lawrence. Lawrence. Yeah, like the Jennifer Lawrence, where like everyone loves her and yes. she's so quirky and adorable and perfect and now yeah i feel like people don't like her and they're like we're over it yeah um i hope not with phoebe bridgers I, I love her but i think she's been playing music since she was like 15 and i don't know i'd like to think she can handle it okay yeah let's just choose yeah. to believe she's got this <laughs> she's got this she's got this but i just uh, <laughs> i fear for like you know the twitter mobs or whatever oh yeah they already came after her after she smashed that guitar in snl really yeah, yeah. Why? Did you did you hear this? So she smashed a guitar at the end of her set on SNL. I saw it, yeah. Recently. And people people did come after her for that. Like they were angry that she would waste a guitar and like that it was very pompous or something and she was like I'm literally doing what so many male rock stars have done and uh you've never criticized them and they, yeah, they came for her already. So I, I thought, yeah, your I thought it was, was like president. I thought it was like 2020 performance art. It was like an exercising of demons, right? Like after the election <laughs> and the and the pandemic, like yeah, smash your fucking I mean, guitar. Yeah, totally. But smash whatever is he, near. Here's the other thing, though, is that when she was doing that, all I could think was her hands. I was like, her, she's going to hurt her hands. Like, I kept thinking that... Why are you so protective of I her? I don't... I feel she seems... She's wearing a skeleton costume. She seems fragile. She's singing... You know, she sings these, like, little, like, <laughs> intimate folk songs. And I, I sense a lot of, like, sweet sadness in her. You know, I think mm. everybody does that. Mm-hmm. She, she's like... She really evokes a lot of that. But, like, I don't know. She just seems, like, fragile to me. Uh, and like, Well, I'm, I wonder if she practiced... Like, do you practice smashing a guitar for a performance? That's a good question. Ahead of I, time? I would say no. And, you know, have, you've held a guitar before. Like an electric guitar. Is, yeah, they're heavy. They're heavy. And like to swing one like an axe. And like. Well, wouldn't it be so embarrassing if you tried to smash it and it just 
stayed completely intact. Well, there you go. See, because that's what I was thinking. It's <laughs> like she's she's made this choice. And like once you make that choice, you have yeah. to go all in. Like you have to. She did look scared. Yeah. I feel like. And like she wh- looked like, oh, shoot, this might not work. And what about like electrocuting yourself? I don't know. Maybe I'm over. Overprote- yeah. <laughs> I think maybe I'm overprotective of Phoebe Bridgers. But I was concerned <laughs> about electrocution and the possible, you know, possible laceration of her hands, which for a musician, you know, could be seriously problematic. Wow. Now I can see why you really had a hard time breaking up with people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Here's another thing. Your care is so deep. I, you know, you know, I, I think she's gifted. And uh, the other thing I was thinking, and I also, I think too, like I try to pay attention to like cultural movements that seem smart and interesting but are aged down for mm-hmm. me because I'm a parent mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to be cool dad, but I just want to like, I want to at least have <laughs> some, ready? I want to at least be aware. I don't want to be like yeah. a dad who's like, have you heard Pink Floyd? Like, you know, I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be like that far removed from whatever's going to come down the pike. I want to have some awareness of like stuff that I could like, you know, nudge my daughter towards or whatever that doesn't suck. And yeah. Um, but then I, you know, there's this, I'm also, uh, to just stay on this Phoebe, Phoebe Bridgers obsession, <laughs> the whole skeleton trope that she's been doing with this mm-hmm. album where she's just basically every time she appears in public, she wears this skeleton costume. Yeah. I haven't seen her in anything but that on like any, like she goes on oh. late night shows. It seems like every time I see her, she's wearing that skeleton shirt. Well, you know, you can buy it on her website. We'll you can buy the skeleton pants. I've, I've gotten very close to buying them. <laughs> So, but, but I, yeah, I didn't notice that, notice that. Okay. So what I was thinking is like, I was like, oh, wow. You know, this is kind of like sort of Lady Gaga-esque or, you know, any like pop stars tend to do this. They tend to like come up with like a visual um, style or like representation for each new album rollout. Mm. It doesn't seem totally, it's not always the case, but it seems like kind of a thing, right? With like Lady Gaga yeah. being like the extreme example. Is that where the Oreos came from? Are they for an album? The what? There are Lady Gaga Oreos. There are? Yes. Damn. I didn't know that. Like you can buy yeah. like you can buy them at the store? Yeah. And they're I don't know, like green and pink, I think. Wow. So it goes really deep. I'm I'm just trying to support your theory here. Okay, but hear me out, because I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, yeah. I uh <laughs> I was thinking that what Phoebe Bridger should do, because I think like, I love the, I love what the skeleton shirt, like what the skeleton outfit evokes, you know, in terms of like reminding people of their mortality and like how we're mm-hmm. all just like these ephemeral little like bursts of energy or whatever. Um, but what I think would be funny is if she never let it go and she just wore the skeleton for the rest of her life, every time she played music, instead of yeah. trying to like, you know be some sort of uh like fashionista who comes out with like a new you know like madonna used to do that and Mm, lady gaga mm -hmm. does it like every day you know she goes out in like a different outfit and i'm not talking that down there's a place for that but like what about like a (laughs) monomaniacal commitment to the skeleton as your visual style like that would be intense and and it would also be unique because nobody seems to do that I don't know. What about the guy with the red hot chili peppers? Did he ever give up the sock? Maybe not. 
<laughs> Did Gallagher ever stop smashing watermelons? Uh, I see. You. I take your point here. I don't know. I don't know, but I yeah, I, I wouldn't be disappointed if she kept with the skeleton the rest of her career. And I liked that at the Grammys, she wore like a couture version. It seemed like of the skeleton, mm -hmm. like it was a fancier, bejeweled skeleton. Oh yeah, but still the se but it was still the skeleton. Yeah. Wow. Perfect. Uh, I mean, really, I just want can we start like a phoebe bridgers <laughs> podcast I, <laughs> just keep I doing this didn't expect to spend this much time here i i think what it is there's like uh, a lot of excitement it's interesting how these kind of cultural phenomena unfold whether it's in literature or music whatever it happens to be but i think there's some sort of like uh like really good literary quality to the lyrics it's very personal and vulnerable it like evokes a lot of sympathy. I don't know. You just feel like mm -hmm. you just feel for this person. I guess that's what good musicians do. Um, and she's got a sense of yeah. humor. I don't know. Just like a good egg, it seems like. Yeah. And, uh, but I don't know why. Like, you know, it's, it's, it, there are a lot of good eggs. It's interesting how like it lands on somebody. Do you know what I'm saying? I bet you she feels that way. Like, why me? Like, well, I think, yeah, I think her her timing was perfect. Like the whole skeleton thing, reminding you of your mortality. She comes out with this album that is very sympathetic and personal and raw at this time that we're going through a pandemic. I think the timing lined up perfectly. And I this actually goes back to when we were talking about writing something commercial. I feel like, you know, the best writers are writing themselves. And then if it happens to line up with the cultural moment, perfectly then that becomes a hit right you know what i mean but you and can't, i feel but like you, maybe that happened for her yeah and you can't game it though it's complete right it's completely like just the spin of the wheel who knows unless she knew the pandemic was coming <laughs> i guess that's got to be a weird feeling though i guess it might feel like you won the lottery or something like oh my god <laughs> like it's got to, because I mean, imagine the skeleton thing and now a quarter of a million people are dead. It's perfect. That's No, but also like everybody's clapping and, you know, suddenly I've got a bajillion followers on social media who are yammering at me. And like, I think like on paper or like, you know, at first blush, that's sort of like what everyone wants. Like all these writers out yeah. here that I talk to, everybody wants a big readership and that's mm -hmm. natural. I don't think there are too many, maybe there's a couple people who really don't give a shit, but I think most of us are like hoping that we'll, our work will find a big readership. Uh, and I think I, I was also thinking the other day, like, wow, you know, everybody who's sitting at home with their book, whatever it happens to be, even if it's something that's like in a, you know, uh, like a smaller register or whatever in the back of their head, they're thinking, but this is going to be the one that breaks you know, the trend, <laughs> you know, like you almost have to delude yourself or at least like hold that. You have to hold that belief somehow just to keep yourself going, you know, like, yeah. I don't know how you get through a project, but we all secretly think we're going to be like the, the one with the lucky rabbit's foot and that like, we're going to time it right. Um, right or wrong. Do you agree? I mean, I don't know if everybody thinks like has that level of confidence, but I think like you have to have moments of it or like entertain the possibility to push yourself to keep writing. <laughs> okay. I, I agree. And I think yeah. here's the point for the people to whom that, that the, 
the big ride happens. Like they publish their book and like it catches mm-hmm. a wave. And for whatever reason, you know, the timing is right. The culture is ready. They get some sort of break in the media, some, in, you know, front page review, whatever it is that sets it off or whatever confluence of events it is that um, sets it off. That's what we're hoping for. And it seems like best case scenario. And in many ways, it very much is. What I also can imagine, and I would say the same thing for like winning any kind of lottery situation, is that it must be terrifying when it happens. It must be like yeah. like this combination of being thrilled, but also like, oh, shit. Like, you know, like everything's got, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just like a total bonanza and it feels 100% great. But I, I have to believe there's <laughs> I some, think so. I think there's some sense of like, yeah. if you're on the receiving end of that it's almost like, Oh my God, put the genie back into the bottle. Like I didn't mean to, you know, and like the, I'm imagining like a slot machine, like dinging in the background, you know, and like coins are just pouring out of it. It's like, it almost feels like you set off a fire alarm or something, but uh, I'm all over the place with these analogies, but you know what I'm saying? It's like an (laughs) element fire alarm over driving. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's better than having to like commute. Uh, Well, I, uh, I enjoyed whimsy so much and as i was telling you you. i think before we started um for listeners at home like before i got shannon on the uh on the line i was preparing for the conversation and i was like frantically flipping through the book (laughs) because my memory is so bad trying to remember what the protagonist's name was and eventually got to a place (laughs) where i convinced myself that it was a book where there was no name for the protagonist and then like 15 seconds before <laughs> we came on the line together, it occurred to me that the protagonist's name is Whimsy and that's the title of the book. And I was, you know, it's, it's like running around the house looking for your sunglasses when they're on your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just great to meet you and uh, I really appreciate this book. Um, it resonated with me for a variety of reasons. It definitely resonated with me creatively, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm excited. Can you give me any more hints about the thriller? Like what's the premise? Like, do you have like a one sentence okay. pitch? Yeah. I mean, it's not super refined, but it uh, has to do with twins who are separated at birth and meet in adulthood and switch places. So, you know, you've got a cliche platform, but I'm trying to, dig a little deeper and make it more me. So that's where the layers of the, the trope and the commercialism are starting to peel away. Are you a twin? I'm not. I've had a lot of friends who are twins. Maybe that's where it came from. But part of it also was watching that documentary, Three Identical Strangers. Did you see that? No. Uh-uh. Okay, you should see it. It's about an um, adoption agency that had um, twins and triplets that were separated and there was a Yale study done on these children who were raised in different homes and um, these triplets met each other in college and reunited. And it's just an incredible story. Is it happy? Um, no, it's uh, not. So uh, maybe don't, don't watch it if you're not ready. I, I just, here's the thing. I can't watch shit like this at night and I yeah. want, I want to watch it. I want <laughs> to watch it. Like everyone's like, Oh my God, like this Woody Allen, Mia Farrow documentary. Ooh. Yeah, and I'm like, I can't. I, people are falling asleep to this. Like, what kind of monsters are <laughs> you? <laughs> like, 
Who? I don't... Like, there's definitely a long list of those movies that that you're like, I want to watch that. I'm never gonna watch that. Like, yeah, <laughs> for that know, reason. I, I the older I get, like, I'm literally at the point where I, I the only thing I can watch before going to bed is Rick Steves. I'm just like, okay, this is my speed. Like, this is what I need at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Then don't watch it. I don't need a, a a like you know like ultra nerdy middle aged man in pleated dockers, you know, traveling to <laughs> Liechtenstein, like you know telling have me. you watched repair shop no on netflix you need to watch that it's like great british baking show and antiques road show had a baby and it's so soothing oh okay because like yeah isn't great yeah. british baking show i saw like a story about it and, and how people were using it to like self-soothe during the pandemic yes yeah it's very soothing and they just bake it's shit. just a lot of yeah, happy people supporting each other. It's very mellow and low key. You would love it because there's a lot of caring involved. Oh, and same with a uh, repair shop. People bring in their prized possessions from childhood or their grandparents' um, possessions, and they bring them to be refurbished. And it, and the people refurbishing them just like have so much love for these objects. And then the people reunited with them at the end cry usually and hug, and it's just. You know who it's I'm. Beautiful. You know who I'm like. I'm just real. I don't know why it took me this long to realize this. I'm like my mom. I'm so much like my mom. <laughs> she. The only thing she can watch at night is Hallmark movies. Oh yeah. She sit. My mother sits alone at home in her room at night and watches these movies about like princesses. And I'm like, mom, what are you doing? And she's like, because yeah. she has trouble sleeping. And, you should tell her to watch Cedar Cove with Andy McDowell. It's like that, but. I better think, I, I would guess she's probably seen it yeah i'd probably yeah, watch probably. cedar cove you Andy. should watch it yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is the path that i'm headed down you i'm gonna be i'm like just a couple years away from we'll start being... with repair shop and then maybe you'll be ready for the hallmark movies and cedar cove in a few years and then with a light like apre television phoebe bridgers listening session just like a yeah folk, like a folksy <laughs> soothing <laughs> somewhat sad and then i smash a guitar and go to bed that'll be it there you go uh shannon it's a pleasure to talk with you congratulations on your novella and good luck on your thriller thank you so much it was honestly a dream to be here i feel like i can quit writing i've reached my pinnacle dream goal for my writing career i think you need to raise your sights <laughs> Okay, guys, there you go. That's Shannon McLeod. Her novella is called Whimsy. It's available from Long Day Press. You can find her on the internet. Her website is shannon-mcleod.com. She's on Twitter, and I don't even know how to pronounce her handle. It's at O-C-Q-U-E-O-C-S-A-M. She's just, like, you just got to take it from me. She's on Twitter. Just track her down. Again, that's Shannon McLeod. And her new novella is called Whimsy. Go get your copy. Read it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available. More than 700 episodes and counting. If you like it, if you listen regularly, if it gives you something, give a little back. Support the show. Throw a dollar in the hat. Throw two dollars. Throw three. Throw five. Throw 500. Throw money at me. You can do that over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Get a t-shirt, a tote bag, a mug, a 
postcard, a book club membership, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you have something you need to say to me, the email address for this show is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at other PPL. Uh, oh yeah. The other people podcast has its own app. Don't forget about that. It too is free. The other people with Brad Listy app, go get it wherever you get your apps. It's a good app. It's a convenient app. It's a great way to listen. Next week on the program, I believe my guest is going to be Patricia Engel, the author of the bestseller infinite country, but I'm not a thousand percent sure. Stay tuned. I've been listening to some of the old archived episodes, too. I used to scream. (laughs) It's pretty funny. It's funny to hear how you've evolved. I don't know. It's just, it's sort of horrifying to listen to old recordings of yourself, but I've made 700 of them just to, like, you know, make myself miserable. (laughs) 